Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his article, The Ethical Significance of Cost-Benefit Analysis for Business and the Professions, Robert Audi considers the role that cost-benefit analysis could play in various ethical approaches or systems, moral theories, essentially. And he considers utilitarianism, conscient deontological ethics, and then virtue ethics. And he concludes by approaching a point of view, which is indeed his own, one that he identifies with. And sometimes we call this intuitionist ethics following W.D. Ross's classic formulation of this, which Audi brings up in this piece. But Audi himself prefers to call this pluralistic ethics. And why does he call it pluralistic ethics? Because it's going to take into account a plurality of principles, as we'll we'll get to. So he's looking to see what role cost-benefit analysis could play within this. And interestingly, it's going to appear that perhaps it's a little bit less than with the other rival moral theories, if we're thinking about virtue ethics and Kantian ethics, and then certainly less than utilitarianism, which is you know sort of like cost-benefit analysis writ large. So what is pluralistic ethics? He tells us what he views this as being. It incorporates virtue ethics, conscientism, and utilitarianism. How so? It incorporates the utilitarian emphasis on happiness and suffering, the suffering of ourselves and others. The conscient emphasis on respect for persons, which Audi thinks is really important. And the virtue theoretic emphasis on the moral importance of character. But then he goes on and he says, it's not a virtue theoretic view or a master principle theory, as we could say that Kantianism is maybe utilitarianism if we want to count the greatest happiness principle. So what does it use for its plurality of principles, which collectively account for the moral obligations any plausible ethical theory seeks to explain? He says there is a possibly open-ended list of basic prima facie duties that are knowable apart from reliance on a comprehensive moral theory. And he says, you know, I have in mind what we find in W.D. Ross's The Right and the Good, a classic work in uh, ethics, who posited duties, and here he brings up uh, the ones that that, uh, Ross himself identifies, fidelity and veracity, beneficence and gratitude, self-improvements, justice, non-injury, and reparation. And he says, each of these represents a source of assignments of moral value values, whether or not we use cost-benefit analysis in arriving at a decision. So what does that mean? Well, each of these, whatever you want to call them, principles, values, prima facie duties, indeterminate situations, it gives us an idea what we ought to be looking for and what we ought to be doing, not doing, how we ought to be doing it, and uh, gives us a a sense of value here, right? So in some situations, perhaps non-harming, non-maleficence takes priority. In others, perhaps fidelity does, right? In others, perhaps justice is going to. And we don't have to go deep into the weeds about how this works, he says, I want to consider how a cost-benefit analysis applies in this ethical approach. So 
He talks then about hard cases. Conflicts of moral obligations are common and present the most difficult challenges to normative ethics. And he says there's no easy way to settle these, but this is actually how we do ethics in large part. You know, you don't really have to do an awful lot if it's easy cases, right? Maybe just educate people. But what if there's genuine conflicts between what we sense our moral obligations to be? So he gives you some examples of this. One might have conflict obligations under contract to one's employer and duties of citizenship to the people. So how do you reconcile these? Take tire safety. He says, how safe must we be in setting manufacturing standards? How serious is it if tires will not always withstand illegal speeds that we know that some people will take them to, but are otherwise safe? Right? And then he says, we could also apply this to advertising decisions. For example, advertising tobacco products in ways that will tempt those too young to purchase them legally. Right? And so he goes on and he's giving you other examples. What are we really interested in here? So he's going to introduce a distinction that we have to unpack, you could say. And he says that the pluralistic perspective is actually going to show us some of the limitations of cost-benefit analysis in ways that, of course, utilitarianism can't and virtue ethics and deontological ethics didn't. So he's going to talk about organic versus additive value in terms of intrinsic value, including moral value. Right? So he says, suppose we assign in an intuitive way positive and negative values to act types and outcomes taken as morally relevant by W.D. Ross's framework. So we got these prima facie duties. We get into a situation where we're like, okay, which duties apply? How do we assign values to them? How is this going to work? He says, this can be an issue when justice, you know, fair distributions and beneficence, doing good to other people, are in a kind of opposition. Now here he actually has a very interesting case, right? He says, consider a man who is a malicious criminal and unrepentedly serving his sentence. Our duty of beneficence would suggest a positive valuation on providing him with pleasures such as cable television. By the way, this is the case in many American prisons, right? You can purchase a television set. Of course, you pay a lot of money, more than you would out on the uh, normal economy for that. And then you can have it in your cell and you can watch whatever cable the prison itself subscribes to, right? So this is a actual sort of case. And Beneficence would say, all right, give him that. That's, that's nice, right? Uh, it's helping him out. But consider the overall value of the state of affairs, the unrepentant malicious criminals enjoying his evenings. Although we've added something good in itself, the sort of thing we like to add to the lives of people who don't have it, in so doing, we have created a state of affairs that is intrinsically worse. The pleasures we would beneficently give ill befit their unrepentant malicious recipient, right? So we're creating injustice. We're contravening the value or principle of justice in this case by doing beneficence. So we have a real conflict of duties. Now, Audi doesn't actually go further with this analysis as somebody who's actually taught in a maximum security prison where prisoners did in fact get to watch TV. I can tell you that there's other prima facie duties that could apply in this case. For example, that of non-maleficence are not harming because guards 
And, you know, administrators, they love for prisoners to have TVs. You know why? Not out of the kindness of their heart, not because they're doing beneficence. They love for prisoners to have TVs for two main reasons. One is, if you're in your cell watching TV, you're not out of your cell doing something you're not supposed to be doing, either to the guards or to your fellow prisoners, right? So it, it tends to curb violence to some degree. And it also gives the administration one more thing they can hold over the prisoner to ensure compliance, to ensure good behavior. If you're bad, we're going to take your TV away from you, right? So the situation, if we actually know much about this, and this is why it's important to like actually think empirically about these matters, it might involve several different interesting conflicts going on, which might make us say, well, we're not happy with the injustice of this malicious person enjoying cable television, but on the other hand, keeps him busy. And that's good for making sure he doesn't affect anybody else, right? So he goes on and he says, it would be unjust to give him television. And if that is, it's because of a relation among the elements in the overall state of affairs. That is what he means by organic. Additive means you can just add the numbers to each other. With this, organic means there's a complex thing here. He says, injustice is not an element like pain consequential upon non-normative states of affairs, meaning like you poke somebody in the eye, that's going to hurt, right? That's a non-normative state of affairs, but the pain itself is something that we sense. It is consequential upon the unfittingness of the good treatment of the criminal to his evil disposition, his unmitigated malice, right? So we're not just adding things up. And he says, this doesn't preclude our assigning a value to the overall state of affairs, but it does imply that initial assignments of value are at best guidelines. And he actually suggests that maybe we have to fine tune these over time in what he calls reflective equilibrium, which is a term that's coming from a different philosopher. It's a matter of sort of like recalibrating, rethinking things over time. It's John Rawls who, if I remember right, first coins that, that phrase, which then gets used by a lot of ethicists later on. So, he goes on and he says that, what if we take a different example? Consider a case in which we're deciding what fine to levy on a business found guilty of breaking the rules of bid rigging. Imagine that I'm the judge and I have legal discretion. If I think that the fine money would, on my recommendation, be put to a good purpose, like funding research and ethics, that might send a message I'm biased by my own interests. It might also reduce disincentives for similar offenses where I stand to be the judge in the case and my favorite causes coincide with that of the now, the assumption there that Audi hasn't spelled out is that the fine money, the money that would be spent on the fine, would be spent by the corporation doing ethics research, which I'm in favor of. And so he says, imagine I'm able to assign numbers to represent values and probabilities. I may add the value of the outcomes and find it quite positive. In comparing the two judgment options, I may decide the higher number doesn't represent my overall assessment of preferability, right? And so I can recalculate or bring about reflective equilibrium. And he, he goes on from this and he's going to talk about the role that intuition has to play. Now, he doesn't mean intuition just as like pulling stuff out of the air. He means our developed moral intuitions about things, which can be better or worse. And that's part of this pluralistic ethics approach. He says that the cost benefit analysis allows an intuitive assignment of values to outcomes that are not analyzed into components, right? 
And we rely on our intuitions to do that. Now we could also rely on the intuitions of other people. Our intuitions can be better or worse developed. And so he says, cost benefit analysis is not inapplicable, but what we have to do is use intuition at what he calls a global level in evaluating the elements within a whole, such as an action with multiple consequences. So by giving cable television to the malicious unrepentant murderer, that's going to produce a worse state of affairs overall than that I can arrive at a morally satisfactory value for that option, right? So he says that some people might find this appeal to intuition troublesome, but I think that as good as we can actually get, I have to look to the overall character of an act in relation to the situation. And Audi, who is a follower of Ross in this respect, thinks that this is probably as good as it's going to get. So we can use cost-benefit analysis with pluralistic ethics. It takes some working out of things, and the best that we can arrive at are sort of rough estimates, which is the case anyway for pluralistic ethics. There aren't any rules that govern everything all the time. We have to exercise some judgment, some, as we say, common sense. We have to exercise our intuitions in applying these various prima facie duties or moral principles. But there is some scope for cost-benefit analysis to be useful in this. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.